Um, good morning, and it's, uh, it's wonderful to see a lot of familiar faces here. It's, it's nice to see everybody. Um, I've got to figure out now, since the last time I was here, you know, this is what's happened. I've got to see if I can read this. Yeah. Um, right? So, um, James Madison, the uh, founding father, father of the Constitution, that James Madison, he left for us in 1787. He left for our country one warning. He didn't fear economic collapse. He didn't fear global enemies. Having studied governments throughout history, the, the mortal disease, that's what he called it, the mortal disease that he feared most, under which popular governments have everywhere perished, he said. What he feared most was the instability, injustice, and confusion that was caused when one political party, united by a common passion, tried to remove the fundamental rights of the minority. He feared majority rule trying to take away the unalienable rights of the minority. I know you know, but the, the idea of America, the, what, what amounts to our unique freedoms, are the rights we enjoy though we may be a political or popular minority. Our Bill of Rights was designed to protect the unalienable rights of everyone, particularly the popular minority. Freedom of expression, freedom of religion, the right against illegal search and seizure. Political whims may ebb and flow, but these rights are fundamental to our freedom. The popular majority, forming around some common passion to abolish those rights, was the only thing that James Madison felt could be the downfall of our union. That was his warning. He warned that passion, the passion that would move one party to try to remove the fundamental rights of, of the minority, would come from one of three places. He said that it could come from what he called a zeal for different opinions concerning religion. He said it could stem from an ambition for power. He said that it most often, historically, came from the unequal distribution of wealth. And think about that, 230 years ago, abuse of religion, ambition for power, the unequal distribution of wealth. Regardless of the motivation of that majority party, though, Madison feared when that majority, he called it an interested and overbearing majority, sought to abolish the rights of the minority. So what I'm talking about today is not simply about the next four years. It's not even about one party or the other. This is not partisan. Whatever my beliefs may be, it's not partisan. It's also, it's not about things like the economic pros and cons of continental trade agreements or, or campaign finance. Those are important, but what I'm talking about are our fundamental rights, the foundations of our freedom. We're talking about the one thing that James Madison felt was a danger to our Constitution, and he wrote it. So this is important because having warned us about what he called overbearing partisanship, James Madison then gave us two lessons on how to avoid that mortal disease. First was a lesson on the Constitution, and second was a lesson on fair elections. When he left us that warning, 
he also explained for us the only defense that he designed in the Constitution against that overbearing partisanship. So his first lesson was, was relatively simple. It, it begins with the idea that the Constitution was not written to be static. It was designed to be amended. The founders, immediately after completing the Constitution, signed its first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, to show us not just about those rights, but that the Constitution was designed to evolve, slowly, not whimsically, but to evolve with our greater learning. We have a, a right to free speech, for example, but you can't scream fire in a crowded theater. You can protest, but you can't incite violence. Courts across the country, they, they interpret the First Amendment and they weigh our right to free speech versus the collective good of society. Free speech is not absolute, it evolves. How we define rights to speech and privacy on the internet, for example, was not very well developed in the late 1700s. The Constitution was designed to evolve with our greater learning. Because the point is, if it doesn't evolve, it can grow outdated. It can break rather than bend under the will of the majority. And that's the point of the amendments, to evolve with the lasting consensus of our collective learning. But his, his critical part, the critical part of Madison's first lesson was that though the Constitution should evolve, there are certain fundamental rights, the rights that are outlined in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, that cannot be amended or removed. They cannot be eroded to the point that our fundamental freedoms are lost. So it was designed to evolve with the majority's collective learning, but James Madison's lesson was that certain fundamental rights cannot bend too far before we are no longer truly free. And so, lesson number one is, is understanding and defending the rights of the minority against the will of the majority. And just briefly, we're talking about things like the Fourth Amendment, your right against illegal search and seizure. But we have to be careful about policies like stop and frisk. They may sound good, they may make us feel safer, but ultimately they erode our Fourth Amendment rights. They render it meaningless. We're talking about things like the First Amendment right to freedom of religion, and the separation of church and state. We cannot have a majority party dictating a preferred religion. We all have the right to our own beliefs. And of course now in 2017, we're talking about marriage rights for all. Our highest court has extended marriage rights, first in 1967 to all races, and now more recently to sexual orientation. These are our constitutional rights and they are afforded to all Americans. And so again, that's, that's step one is understanding and defending the rights of the minority against the will of the majority. Lesson number, I think that was actually a relatively simple lesson. I think you knew that from civics class, but lesson number two I think is actually the more important. And this may seem a little too far into the weeds, but I actually do think this is the most important effort that we in the next four years, and by we I mean all of us, red and blue, Republican and Democrat. We need to understand this and, and undertake this. Gerrymandering has to stop. It is dividing us as a country. Now, for those that don't know, gerrymandering is how each state draws geographic boundaries for voting districts. When you get home, you can actually take a look at your own voting district, and what you're going to see is, is that it's going to be some ridiculous shape. 
it's, it's twist and turn, they're, they're all in a ridiculous shape, and it's actually for one reason. It's to ensure that each district is dominated by one party or the other. If there's a large group of Democrats in one part of town, but it doesn't make up enough to be a voting district, it will be connected to another group of Democrats, but it'll be connected by about one block of Republicans. And it's the exact same thing for, for, for Republicans. You'll see a district that's twisted like some sort of a snake or some other strange shape, but it's really so that they have a predominantly Republican or Democratic district. They're deliberately split so that each district can be counted on to produce for one party or the other. And the political goal has been that the ruling party designing the districts at the state level generally tries to give itself an advantage for future elections. You can win more districts with fewer people total if you do the math right. And so this should offend both parties. It serves politicians, not the people. It ensures re-election, not fair elections. If Republicans thought that the Democrats went too far in this last administration, doing away with gerrymandering would guard against that. If Democrats now fear that Republicans will go too far in the upcoming administration, putting a stop to gerrymandering would protect against that. Because the hard, what may be difficult for us, the hard truth is that when we're talking about protecting the First and Fourth Amendments, we have to recognize that goes equally for all amendments. Those who are protective of the Second Amendment deserve as much consideration as those protecting the Fourth. Blue and red are all equally American. But here's the truly scary part. The reason that gerrymandering should be public enemy number one. When James Madison warned about one party taking away the rights of others, either party going too far, he assumed that offending party would not be able to take the majority. In fact, he designed our republic in a certain way to keep that very thing from happening. Madison said the one defense against overbearing partisanship was to elect our representatives from what he called an extended sphere, meaning a large diverse area. He said over a larger area there will be a greater variety of parties and interests. He said specifically that diversity of ideas would ward off a majority party taking control of minority rights. He said that diversity will make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of others. Madison's lesson was that diversity of ideas is the sole defense against overbearing partisanship. But you have to think about that in context because now, 230 years later, we have created districts which are controlled against diversity of ideas. Those crazy voting districts that are all turned and twisted into a shape so that one party dominates, we are purposely creating homogenous districts to help politicians get reelected. This is not a Democrat or a Republican issue because the result, the scary result, is that in one district, if it's a Republican district, Republicans are running against other Republicans. And they very often find success outflanking each other to the right. And it's the exact same thing in Democratic districts. They outflank each other to the left. And so as a result, we are sending to Washington the most extreme right and extreme left of our parties. We're doing the opposite of what the designer of the Constitution said we should do. 
we are blithely working contrary to the direction of James Madison. For all of our talk about founding fathers, we are showing no respect for the one thing that James Madison told us to watch out for, the one thing he warned us about. And frankly, it's a collective lack of humility that I find mind-boggling. Lesson number one is to recognize that we are actually right now living in that overbearing partisanship and recognize that as such, both sides feel that their fundamental rights are threatened. I definitely don't want you to mistake what I'm saying here. We, we must continue to guard against any erosion of our fundamental rights. But the point of Madison's second lesson is that we will not accomplish what is good for all Americans if we simply continue to deepen the trenches in this warfare. We can't simply continue to dig in and disregard the other side, either side. The point of the diversity of ideas is that you can't get elected to represent all of us unless you can find a compromise that works for all of us and agree, fundamentally agree, that Madison's lesson on rights, that those rights cannot be eroded. But that brings me to why we are here on, on this day. Because if we look to James Madison to teach us about the Constitution, we look to Dr. King as to how we should stand up for the rights in that Constitution. First, Dr. King, as you know, uh, famously quoted the Unitarian when he said that he had faith that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. And I think that we as a country similarly have faith, when I was talking earlier about the evolution of the Constitution and the amendments, I think that we as a country have faith that the Constitution will bend towards justice, that the evolution of the Constitution will bend towards justice. But that has not always been the case. And certainly it doesn't bend towards justice on its own. Madison's lessons were fairly simple, but I think Dr. King's is actually incredibly difficult. And, and frankly, in the next four years, um, I think we will be tested in, in Dr. King's lesson. He said, we must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. He said that while we must stand up for our rights, we must do so in a manner that propels us towards brotherhood and sisterhood. We have to learn to protest and stand up in the same nonviolent and respectful manner as did Dr. King. We don't hurl insults. If we're trying to truly reach someone, we don't call them stupid. We don't condescend and we certainly don't get sidetracked by foolishness about the size of somebody's hands. We have to demand more from our leaders. Dr. King's point is that we don't actually succeed if all we do is outmaneuver the opposition and leave them to wallow and plot revenge in two or four years. The true victory in this movement is not only in winning the election. You have to consider simultaneously what Madison and King have taught us. Put their lessons together. Consider that gerrymandering is sending the most extreme right and left of both parties. 
that we're creating homogenous districts, not districts which blend a diversity of ideas. If we're sending the most extreme of both parties, how do you think we're doing with the concept of learning to live together as brothers or perish together as fools? Are our representatives acting like brothers and sisters? With gerrymandering in effect, can they? Gerrymandering is against the teachings of both Madison and King, the professional politicians who are quietly carving up state districts based on party affiliation are not concerning themselves with diversity of ideas for the betterment of the country. They are not concerning themselves that we may perish together as fools. They're simply trying to win elections. And that's on both sides of the aisle. So I submit to you that now more than ever, the only way to lead is as Dr. King did. Now more than ever, living in this overbearing partisanship, we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters. Our vision, our victory is not secured only by fighting to maintain our rights. We must also maintain our civility and our dignity. We must work together to dismantle gerrymandering. Now the good news is, is that Dr. King left for us some insight into how we can do this. You have to consider the mountain that Dr. King had to climb. Think about what that must have felt like, looking up at it. Dr. King said, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. And I know that for a lot of us, this is going to be tough in the next four years. But you have to understand, he said, let no man pull you low enough to hate him. Because hate is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. I will never change anyone's mind by hating him or hating his interpretation of the Bible. I will never change anyone's mind by personal insult or profanity. Any chance I have to change someone's mind will be done much the same way that Dr. King did, by standing up for my rights, absolutely, and by calling on all better angels, we have to, and by living an exemplar life. We will change minds by living out true respect for marriage, and yet unapologetically standing up for marriage rights for all. We will change minds by upholding the law and respecting law enforcement, and yet standing up against racial profiling and policies like stop and frisk. If there are attempts to breach the wall of separation between church and state, we will stand in that breach, but we will not attack anyone's religion. I know I've said a couple times it's gonna be hard in the next four years. I'm thinking of a few particular members who are gonna find it very difficult in the next four years, but if you're sitting here thinking, and I know some of you are, if you're sitting here thinking that you cannot possibly love someone who is trying to take away your rights, think about Dr. King. Consider what the mountain looked like from the bottom. Our current struggle cannot feel more overwhelming than the struggle King faced. Dr. King said, 
somehow we must be able to stand up against our most bitter opponents and say we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. And this is the really important part. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. But be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will win not only our freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process. Now, I generally take anything that Dr. King says with regard to civil rights or civil disobedience as scripture. But if you heard that as I did, he said that we will have to endure suffering. So be it. If you consider all those who came before us to endure suffering for religious freedom, if you consider all those who came before us and endured for equal rights and equal access to economic opportunity, if you consider all that continue to struggle for gay rights and transgender equality, then we should not express such disbelief that we are now asked to endure suffering. As another civil rights leader, Frederick Douglass, once said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. But I am convinced if we are to overcome, regardless of what suffering is inflicted or endured, it will have to be done in a manner propelling us toward brotherhood and sisterhood. It will have to center on the substantive right, not name-calling and slander. Regardless of the bitterness of the opposition, as a more current leader of civil rights said, when they go low, we go high. We will not prevail, our ideas will not win the day if we meet our opponents at the lowest point. We will prevail because we will live lives of example and yet unapologetically wave the banner of freedom for all Americans. As Dr. King said, the hope of a secure and livable world lies with disciplined nonconformists who are dedicated to justice, peace, and brotherhood. And so on this day, in remembrance of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I thank you in particular in this church, because those of you that have been here a long time, you have to recognize Unitarians are indeed disciplined nonconformists who are dedicated to justice, peace, and brotherhood. Thank you.